This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. We know that biodiversity is the variety of life at genetic, species and ecosystem levels and is essential for the resilience of ecosystems. We also know that a part of this essential biodiversity contributes in one way or another to agriculture and food production. But as many reports have pointed to, uh, we know that the global food system is the primary driver of biodiversity loss and this loss will continue to accelerate unless we change the way we produce food and view biodiversity diversity in general. So further destruction of ecosystems and habitats will threaten our ability to sustain human populations. But can mass agriculture ever be friendly to biodiversity? Today on the show, I discuss this and more with Christian Gomez. He's a biologist at the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wild Crew at the University of Oxford. And we're also going to talk about Malaysian biodiversity in terms of its economic uh, value. And, uh, you know, how can we actually put a number on that uh, amazing biodiversity that we have here in Malaysia? Welcome, Christian. How are you today? Thank you very much, Juliet. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So yes, Christian, you know, it's been a couple of years since we caught up. It's nice to have you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I mentioned, you're with the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at the University of Oxford. Um, why why are you interested in topics like, you know, uh, agriculture and, 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 economy. and economy? Yeah. Well, like every um, boy who eventually became an adult, I've learned that money talks. Okay. <laughs> I've learned that the economy matters, that as much as I love wildlife, what really dictates whether it's going to sustain and live and exist 20 years from now is what, and this is going to sound horrible, but what value can be placed on it in the economy. And that is a, it's, you know, every time I reflect on that, it's a sad reality. Uh, and I think many people will join in my lamentations. But when we look at what's happening instead, the facts, we see a very clear message, which is that we are prioritizing things that give us profit over and over again. The bottom line is what matters most. And unfortunately, the environment and wild animals are not placed in that equation. Um, so the way ways in which we calculate profits and the ways in which we report our figures in annual reports don't include our impact on wildlife. Mm. And that is a massive externality that is not in the accounting at the, at the moment. Um, we're doing a lot of things to try and include carbon in the accounting and I think we're moving that, pushing that needle forward. It's doing great things. Um, but in Malaysia, we have two existential threats. One being climate change, for which we have a very small part to play in the global scheme of things. Um, the second thing for which we have a disproportionate effect is biodiversity loss. These are two of humanity's greatest threats at the moment, right? Existential threats. And in this point of time, our generation has had the most power to dictate a million years of human evolution before us and a million years of human future ahead Mm. of us. Mm -hmm. So we are an extremely, you can call it fortunate or really destructive generation, right? We have and we wield so much power just because we were born in this last 200 years, right? Because um, so much has changed in the last 200 years. We have changed so much in yeah, this last Yeah, we have changed so much, right? Yeah. Uh, and we've changed the environment in such a drastic way. But we've not figured out a way yet to include biodiversity into the way we assess progress and development and modernity and civilization and GDP, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ultimately. And so I think until we do that, I will continue to be interested in the economy because I have to be. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm a serious biologist and I'm serious about protecting a species, 
I need to be serious about the factors that are leading to its destruction. And I think it it all boils down to the economy ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what we always hear, right? Isn't it? Because like, uh, you know, when we say don't cut the forest, you know, protect the biodiversity, they're like, ah, oh, but what about the economy? What about, you know, feeding people, putting food on table, things like that. Uh, and so that's why this is such an important conserva- uh, conversation, not conservation. But, um, you know, we are in the midst of a food crisis, as we know, um, mm-hmm. soaring prices. Everybody is really panicking, actually. Um, let's just start with some basics. Maybe you can help folks understand what makes biodiversity Diversity important for food and agriculture? Mm-hmm. Well, first thing, you can look at it from a soil perspective, right? A lot of soil depends on nutrition and our nutrition cycles are governed by really intricate web of life, mm. right? What keeps nitrogen cycling through the air and then into the soil? It's a whole host of bacteria that's taking nitrogen out of the air and converting them into nitrates that then fuel our plants. Um, in lieu of a lot of artificial fertilizers, it is these natural cycles that are governed. And they exist because of the wild places that are there. Once you lose the wild places, then we'll be 100% reliant on pumping chemicals into the ground, Mm. which I think even from an economic perspective, we can all agree is probably not the best way forward. The second thing is our riverine habitats, super, super critical, all of which come from somewhere up a mountain. All of those mountains are jungles in Malaysia at the moment. And so interfering with those wild places, those forests where they're keeping the rivers clean, they're making sure that the water has a path to follow, that the water is flowing down, um, is a super critical function of the jungle. And once we start interfering with those cycles, we start interfering with basic necessities like water. And then you have other things like soil erosion. In Sabah, this is a huge problem. Okay. Um, if you've ever had the pleasure of driving to Mount Kinabalu, um, Mount Kinabalu is in Kundasang, close to it, and run out that entire area. I mean, every t- I've driven there at least 50 times, and at least half the times I've seen an entire side of a hill collapse. Oh, gosh. Right? And it happens over and over again. The main reason is what used to exist there are trees that used to hold the ground together and we've not found a way to keep the soil intact without those trees. Mm. And so what we're going to find is that as we uh, domesticate more wild places, we lose this forest, we're going to find that we'll then learn what the forest was for. And then it'll be too late to replant those forests or get it back and we'll try and find some cheap or (laughs) subpar solution to try and mitigate those effects. So we're always playing catch up, Mm -hmm. right? What we already have is a super functional um, system of life that works. And we've just got to make sure we don't mess it up too much. Um, and that is, <laughs> yeah, that's Sounds the way Sounds simple enough, and yeah. yet... <laughs> yeah. And yet, yet we're failing. <laughs> <laughs> and that is so important, isn't it? That putting that value on it, we won't know until it's too late. And then, as you said, lah, we try to mitigate, we try to adapt, uh, do yeah. some adaptation, uh, whatever. But yeah. what should have been left intact in the first place, that was yeah. what we should have done. But never mind. Um, and maybe, again, let's do some basics. How does agriculture affect biodiversity? Some very basics, yeah, let's yeah, do that. Yeah, great. So, obviously... Agriculture and biodiversity compete for the same plot of land. Sure. Um, and it's unsurprising that agriculture borders forests all the time. Um, and so because we are unable to include an economic value on forest at the moment, unless the forest is protected for some reason, um, the agriculture people have a very strong argument for to the government to say like, you know, we should open up more forests. Yeah. 
because when I make profit, I pay taxes, you become richer, I become richer. It's a win-win. Uh, currently, the forest is not doing anything for anyone. Mm. right? That's the prevailing view in the economy. It's a very simplistic one, but that is a, the prevailing view. Um, and so that's the reason why uh, you know, these two tend to be in conflict all the time. And at the moment, until we get a really good accounting system for looking at the forest and saying, you know, this is not just barren land, or it's not just a land for these animal lovers. It is land that is that has economic value. And until we can subscribe some economic value that is actually reflective of the actual value of all of these natural cycles, it, the forest is always going to lose that, that, that wager, that trade-off. Uh, and that's what's been happening and will continue to happen. However, I think what we can all benefit from is moving beyond this economic view of the forest, right? So... I'm going to pull this conversation out to a really abstract level at the moment. Sure. Um, I'm going to appeal to everyone's sentimentalities at the moment because that is probably the best argument, which is keeping the forest for the forest's sake. Now, when you think about what it means to be Malaysian, and this question has come up to me even more, more recently because I've left for the UK and I spent a year abroad thinking about, and when I interact with other Malaysians, who are we? Right? What makes us unique as a people? Because every English person I meet look, talks to me and says like, you're not Malaysian. I said, I am. And they're like, you're not like the other Malaysian I met. I'm like, yeah, we all look really different. And that is a quintessentially Malaysian thing. We all don't look alike. So that's great. But every time I encounter that, I think immediately, well, if they don't know that I'm Malaysian because they've met another Malaysian that looks different, what is it that makes us all Malaysian, right? It's, it's not the way we speak because we all kind of speak differently, especially we speak English slightly differently. Uh, we all definitely look differently, which is great. Um, so what is it? And th- I think the three things I can settle on is the food. Everyone, every Malaysian gathering I go to in the UK, we're talking about the food we love and miss. So that binds us together. Second thing is our diversity of languages and cultures. That's great. We all love this diversity. But the third thing that I think we've not really fully appreciated is the fact that Malaysia is so rich in its natural wealth, right? If, yeah, if we were to be benchmarked as a country just on our natural wealth, we would be the richest country in the world, <laughs> undoubtedly. For such a small piece of land, we have huge amounts of biodiversity. And um, yeah, and that's massive. I think once we integrate that identity into who we are, you know, when you're walking around as Malaysians and you think about why I'm proud to be Malaysian or if you're not, what it means to be Malaysian, are we thinking about the fact that you're carrying with you these forests, these animals as part of your identity? Because when you can integrate it, right, the loss of a forest will be as devastating as losing your mother tongue or as losing your local cuisine. You know, we get really up in arms when Singapore claims that Nasrama is <laughs> <Yes>. theirs. <laughs> yes, right? We, we get so passionate about it. But it's because it's so intrinsically bound to our identity. Yeah. If the forest was seen with the same regard, we'd be as devastated when some corporation decided that they wanted to cut down a patch of forest for a durian plantation, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that's appealing to people's greater angels and sensibilities and and the I would call it the more aesthetic value of the forest, which is just keeping the forest just because it's a wonderful example of how amazing this planet is. And it's in our country, it's in our home, and it's part of who we are. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it always uh, it's always good to remind folks that we are one of the 17 most mega diverse uh, countries in the world, yep. isn't it? We yep. have that privilege, I suppose, right? Yep. And and again, we are taking it for granted. Let's hold that thought. Let's come uh, go for a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about you know some uh, biodiversity friendly practices, perhaps that we can talk about, especially in terms of food and agriculture. I'm speaking today to Christian Gomez. He's a biologist at the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wild Crew at the University of Oxford. Uh, we're talking about Malaysia's pathway to a biodiversity friendly economy. We'll continue. That discussion after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me today in the studio is Christian Gomez. He's a biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wild Crew at the University of Oxford. Uh, Christian has been on the show before. You know, we've talked about his research for Sunda clouded leopards. But today we're talking about something quite different. Uh, we're talking about Malaysia's pathway to a biodiversity friendly economy. How much value do we put on our biodiversity and our intact forests here in Malaysia? Not much, clearly, right? Um, but, you know, there was a very recent report, Christian, I think just last week, you know, and that came from the Academy of Science Malaysia. And they have put a number of, on it and they said that conserved marine and terrestrial natural areas in Malaysia have an economic growth value of US$167.24 billion. That's about 739.12 billion ringgit. And this is about three times the projected national revenue for 2022. So basically what they were saying is that uh, this figure could be even higher if the country prioritised conservation and restoration, something we were talking about. And also that, you know, uh, what the study showed was that economic growth and nature protection in the region are not mutually exclusive and that conservation could serve as the bedrock of a vibrant regional economy that generates wealth, jobs and food security. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, this is a long-standing argument about how to make biodiversity visible to the economy. Mm. And there's a massive report by a guy named Daskupta in Cambridge. He wrote a huge, I think he was commissioned by the UN to write a huge report about how to integrate it. And Daskupta spent years thinking about so many metrics and indexes. But ultimately, it comes down to being able to properly account for biodiversity in your country. Mm. right? Because there cannot be a global index because every country's level of biodiversity differs. For example, you cut down a tree in a woodland in the UK, you might lose one species of tree, you might lose habitat for two species of bird. That's it. <laughs> a travesty, but... When you come to Malaysia, you cut down one tree in a primary rainforest, you've lost a million years of that tree's evolution. And it's taken it 100,000 years to grow. You've lost probably some endemic species of mushroom that only ever existed on that tree. You've lost homes for millions of insects. Uh, it's it's wild, wildly different, yeah. right? And so, which makes accounting for biodiversity from at a global level almost impossible. So it's great that the Academy of Science is releasing this report because that locally contextualizes the loss of our biodiversity in the economy. And at least we have a figure. What we need to do now is to properly account for how much biodiversity there is, right? So we are looking now at economic markers um, and trying to come up with a figure. But I know for a fact, you know, just on working with the cats alone and mammals and stuff like that, that we don't have a really good idea of what we have in our forest, yet. Correct, yeah. uh, there's so much work to be done. Uh, there's not enough uh, entomologists, there's not enough tree specialists, there's not enough mammal specialists, there's not enough um, herpetologists to study frogs. There's, there's a huge lack of studies to understand exactly what we have in our forest. So 
everything we produce from now will just be a best guess estimate. And I think he's very right in saying that it's going to be a more sort of underestimated value because of all this lack of information. And as the knowledge builds, we're going to realize like, wait a minute, we got this all wrong. It's much more than that. There's much higher value. There's all these new species of mushrooms that have commercial value. There's all these new species of plants that, you know, contribute to the economy in a specific way that we don't quite know yet. Um, So that's my fear with putting figures on things because it needs to be clear that this is the best estimate for now and it probably is a wild underestimate from from the reality mm-hmm. but it is still a really important exercise to make i think this is, has been the thrust of conservation today to try and put this economic value on, on on the figure so at least we know what the loss is going to be like you know one of the things that i'm really interested in is you know one yes let's value economically our protected areas and make sure that we know that when we cut a forest you're not just cutting empty land but there's loss of money and that's what this report has done. Perfect. So we can put a tangible value to it. What I'm really interested in moving forward is in trying to make this commercial land that we as conservationists have relegated as biodiversity deserts. You know, we yeah. think like it's a lost cause. Yeah. A palm oil plantation is dead land. It's just palm oil. Um, what we're trying to do is to change that narrative in working with, say, palm oil plantations or paddy field plantations to try and support biodiversity in those systems as well. Mm. Because there is a lot of agricultural land. There is a lot of domestic land that um, I think is a massive, massive potential. I'll give you really local examples. I work in a forest reserve called Tawau Hills Park, which is this isolated patch of primary forests. Beautiful, beautiful forests. Some of the most stunning places I've walked in my life. Uh, 400 square kilometers, not huge. Lots of cloud leopards in there. Almost every mammal and sun, lots of insects, just everything you can imagine in one forest. Around it, however, is this massive complex of palm oil plantations, huge. And it takes, the distance from Tawau Hills Park to another forest is about 100 kilometers. Okay. Right? So it's quite far. So any animal that wants to leave that Natural, national park is going to have to walk quite a long distance through all palm plantations. Mm. So therein lies our problem. Sure. Um, now, the obvious effort here is to try and work with the palm oil plantations to experiment with models that will facilitate this connectivity. Therefore, also increasing the amount of biodiversity that the oil palm plantation is supporting. Mm-hmm. And there's many, many ways to do this. What if we intersperse every 10 hectares of palm oil with three hectares of forest or two hectares or one hectare. Let's just run many experiments and let's see what works, right? Because there is ways. Like we're finding time and time again when we explore palm oil plantations, yeah, of course, in some of them we detect zero, nothing at all. Um, But ironically, some of the palm oil plantations we studied in Sabah had more mammal detections than forest in Kalimantan. Okay. And that was a study done in 2015, right? So it's quite recent. Um, so it's becoming clear to us that this agricultural land has potential. We can't write it off and we shouldn't because then we lose out on that opportunity. Um, so far in my interactions, all the palm oil companies I've worked with, super susceptible and um, collaborative, very eager to support biodiversity because of course they are under lots of pressure as well. Uh, I think when we can demonstrate that we can make our agricultural products more biodiversity friendly, not just by taking random pictures of animals in the 
palm oil, but to do actual science, right? Legitimate, trustworthy, robust science that can prove that the palm oil plantations doesn't need to be a desert. Mm. But that's going to take experiments. It's going to take trialing different models of pathways uh, and uh, you know land use designs to make that happen. And never been done in Malaysia. Huge opportunity for multi-stakeholder collaborations to try and make this happen. I think everyone will benefit from it. Um, and I think this might be the future for conservation. Like Protected areas are great, but we're finding... You know, a recent paper was published just out of Strawa by colleagues at Unimas about the felids in Strawa. They studied all five cats. The first proper estimate for the whole state, so it's wonderful. Mm. Uh, but we're finding that there were an equal number of felids in protected areas and outside them. Interesting. Right? Okay. And there's a danger there because, you know, one, the unprotected areas can very quickly change into other things. But also that animals are not just selecting protected areas. They they do use anything they can use. Mm. Uh, and we can, you know, habitats are a gradient. It's a spectrum. It's not ones and zeros. Uh, it's not yes habitat or no habitat. You know, we can make it, we can try to make these grey kind of habitats where it's not the ideal, but it can work. Um and I think that's the future for making agriculture more biodiversity friendly. Mm-hmm. The specific actions, you know, things like wildlife corridors, huge potential there. Little islands of forest, huge potential there. Using less, um, of course, chemical fertilizers. I think the implementation of buffer zones is really key here. So whenever plantations border a forest, you know, to keep a 100 meter buffer zone so that chemicals don't leak out. Yeah. Um, you, if you read all of the criteria in the round table of sustainable palm oil, for example, the RSPO, fantastic guides there. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't delivered on the economic front because uh, I think palm oil plantations in Malaysia have grown quite jaded because they were told that once they get this certification, they'll then be accepted globally and you know can export. But that hasn't happened, of course. The EU has clamped down quite hard anyway. Um, and so that has led to some distrust. But if you actually look at the document, it really pushes the whole plantation field forward in thinking about workers' rights and protection of biodiversity and you know finding areas of high biodiversity hotspots within the plantation and protecting that as well. Mm-hmm. So massive, massive potential there. I just think um, we need to make sure that we're taking care of the plantation owners. And you know even if we push them, to improve their standards of conservation and workers' rights, that we're also making sure that they're rewarded for it, making sure that palm oil prices are kept up, that markets are opening up because of their efforts. You know, mm-hmm. So the people who are lobbying on, uh, on the behalf of palm oil growers in Malaysia, in the EU, for example, very important job, and they need to really make sure that there's a feedback going on between what the EU wants and what we're doing here. So you say that's not happening right now? It is. And I know of a few people who are, you know, based in Europe, lobbying on our behalf. Of course, the many ministers of trade do that as well. Uh, it's a government function. I think there are independent bodies like um, uh, Malaysian Palm Oil Council, MPOC. Yes, yeah. MPOC. So they send representatives to Europe as well to lobby on our behalf. So it is happening, but the fact is we're not winning that battle at the moment. Palm oil is still not being imported in many parts of the world. And I think that that is a problem because once we start exporting to markets that are more conscientious about biodiversity or willing to pay for people who are more responsible to biodiversity, that pushes the market towards a more biodiversity-friendly economy. Currently, I think the people who are buying 
palm oil don't care about biodiversity or workers rights mm. and that's bad for the industry um Okay, all right. So, I, I mean, you know, what you're saying is actually, I would say, not a very popular opinion, right? Like protecting the rights of oil palm, uh, uh, yeah, of plantation yeah. owners. Uh, yeah. You know, when you say plantation owners' rights, I think I can imagine a lot of our listeners going, ugh, who cares about them, right? Yeah. But that is important, right? I mean, we have to be very, very I think, Yeah, I think I would have shared it. that, you know, when I was a uni student and learned about conservation and the loss of forests, you know, I became obviously quite up in arms and enraged by how we're losing all this land for the greedy businessman who just wants to make a profit, right? But I've worked in conservation now and mm. I interact with palm oil owners every day and they're simple men who are just trying to make ends meet. Um, there are a few really large corporations, but for the large part, there are also a lot of really small <laughs> private smallholders uh, who have piece, piecemeal kind of land and who are just trying to get by. And the only thing they know they can do is plant something. Mm. Whether it's palm oil or cocoa or pepper, they just they just that's all they know how to do and that's what they sustain on. So we can't take away that from them because it's their birthright. They own the land and they can do whatever they want with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say meeting them in the middle is the way forward. Okay. Um, sure. We've got to find a way. Yeah. Okay, all right. So I guess, you know, if we were to look at like places that have uh, been doing this. I mean, are there some sort of biodiversity-friendly practices in agriculture that you can tell us about? You know, what's on the rise, I suppose, uh, in terms of the global stage as well? Yeah. So now, you know, I, I mentioned about the buffer zones, making sure that that uh, chemicals don't leak, leak out, but also an effort to try and designate plots of land within plantations and calling that um, areas of high biodiversity. Yeah. Uh, that's a really important effort now that's being done. Uh, you know, I told you earlier about how high elevation places within plantations are not productive mm-hmm. uh, and logistically unfeasible. So lots of plantations plantations are leaving that as forest. Um, there's an effort to try and plant fruit trees interspersed by the plantations to encourage birds to travel through and see dispersers travel through and use the land as well. Uh, of course, implementing hunting laws, super, super critical because even once we encourage animals to use the plantation unfortunately there's very little oversight about hunting sure. obviously there's a lot of people that live in plantations and who are underpaid mm-hmm. and one of the main ways they make up for that is by going out and shooting any animal that comes through the plantation mm. and unfortunately if you want to make this happen we've got to stop that and the plantations are in the best place to do it because they employ these people so they have quite a lot of leverage at the moment to try and make sure that their workers aren't going out at night and shooting mm-hmm. shooting animals. And that happens at a very, very high rate. Mm-hmm. But also, I suppose, you know, conflict in that sense, right? Wildlife, human-wildlife yeah, conflict as yeah. well. Uh, we've seen things of like traps and things traps, like that. Yeah, um, yeah the elephants in Sabah is a big example yeah. of um, an animal coming in conflict with the economy all the time. Every time plantations plant a new batch of crop, the elephants come in in one night and boom, it's, it's all gone. gone months right? of effort. Yeah. And so trying to find a way to balance that is also, I guess, a real big focus. Okay, all right. And I guess, you know, you're talking about biodiversity beyond its economic value, right? And if we don't understand it well, we're never actually going to get its full value pretty much, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So here's an appeal to more biologists. (laughs) The economy needs you. You need to go out and we need to get a proper account of what we have uh, and where they are. And not just look in the forest in the beautiful patches of pristine jungly trees, but go out into plantations and see what's there. Uh, work with plantation owners. They're not the enemy. They need to be friends. Uh, not because we are giving up our conservation values, but it's because 
obviously the economy is governing things. And if we aren't seeing that yet, then we are just turning a blind eye mm. and putting blinkers on and just we just want to keep our agenda. Uh, I think it's absolutely necessary to bring them on as stakeholders. So, yeah, my appeal to other biologists is go out there, speak to plantation owners, find out what they are seeing, survey plantations. Uh, let's do a proper account for biodiversity in all parts of nation, all kinds of land. And then we can make more useful predictions about its economic value. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully make it visible to the economy. And working with local communities, I, I, I'm imagining that's something that's very critical as well, isn't it? Because, you know, yes, we, we always talk about the big corporations, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the big plantation owners, but there are also all the local stakeholders, the small stakeholders, uh, you know, their value, their their uh, contribution to the conversation also is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, to the smallholder, at the end of the day, he wants to feed his family. Yeah. Uh, and no matter what conservation message you have for him, his bottom line is providing for his family and the future of his family. Mm-hmm. And unless we can see that, we will constantly miss the mark. Constantly. It's just completely different interests. Okay. All right. Yeah. So having those conversations again, and I think that's happening, right? More plantation owners are open to these conversations mm-hmm. uh, as because, you know, obviously they are facing a lot of uh, sanctions, isn't it? By yeah. the EU, for example. So it's coming to, it's it's affecting their bottom line, isn't yeah. it? Pretty yeah. much. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's, yeah, I think the time is quite opportunistic at the moment yeah. because agriculture is under a lot of pressure, both from the economy because we've not, we're not producing enough to feed the population, mm. but also we're not able to export to a lot of really high income uh, markets. Mm-hmm. So we're hurting yeah. ourselves, right? If yeah. we don't find ways to fix these problems. Fix these problems. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christian. Uh, anything else you want to add? No, this was really fun. Thanks again, Juliet, for having me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I've been speaking today to Christian Gomez, a biologist at the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit or Wild Crew at the University of Oxford. Uh, if you'd like to follow Christian's work, I believe he's on Twitter and Instagram. Not quite yet on TikTok, but yes, you can follow his updates. Uh, just search for Christian Gomez. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.